Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 30. Hear now the word of God. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that as we look at these words, penned by Luke, but most certainly inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, that as we look at them, it would tell us things, things about ourselves, things about you, that as we look at these words, that by your Spirit, we would either be comforted or challenged or rebuked in some way, Father, sanctified. So we do pray, Father, that you would continue to do that work in our hearts as you conform us into the image of your precious Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. You know, when I first took this pulpit, uh, almost 34 years ago, the previous pastor who actually had started this church invited me to a Bible study that he was leading at a nearby retirement home. And um, he led a study there. It was mainly widows. And as we walked to the car, he reminded me as Christians, he'd say, you know, we can't forget the widows. I mean, he was adamant. We can't forget the widows. And I have to say, I, I really sought to take that to heart. And, you know, I led that Bible study for the next 25 years until I was able to say that to somebody else. And uh, I just want to stop here and, and just kind of challenge you all with something. And I don't want to present this to, you know, applaud myself and have my right hand start talking to my left hand and all that stuff you're not supposed to do. Nonetheless, it, I think it's important, you know, at least by example, that you know that as, and I'm saying this not as a pastor because what I'm about to say it's not part of my job description. It's just what I've done as a Christian for the last 40 years. There's probably not been one month in my life where I've not somehow worked with either widows, orphans, or homeless. And I'm saying that because, you know, we're as Christians called to do that. And I do hope that all of you are finding a place. You know, maybe only you know about it, but you're finding a place to go, you know what, I'm going to serve Christ by serving somebody else. And so, you know, just, just take that to heart, that we are all called to be workers, right? You're, you're on God's team, okay, and there are nobody, nobody's on the bench on God's team. Everybody's in the game, or at least we should be, we should be in the game. But going back, I had, over the years, many, many rich encounters with these, with mainly women. There were very few men. And one of the women in that very first study, 30, almost 34 years ago, Eva May, Eva May Clark, she's long since gone to be with the Lord, had this kind of recurring theme when I would walk in. Uh, she was too old to engage in the type of 
ministerial activities that she enjoyed when she was younger, and she knew it. She just didn't have, you know, the, the, the physical capacity to do the things that she used to do. But she'd always say to me that she's available to do whatever God wants her to do. She was very much. But she had this little theme. She's like, I'll do whatever God wants me to do. I'm available. Yet at the same time, I'm not sure why he's keeping me here. And I'm ready to go anytime he wants me. Oh, to live a life of such faithfulness that the prospect of departing is like walking through a door. That was the case with Eva May. And that is the case with the person that we're reading about in this text this morning. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. So now we are introduced to a person, quite frankly, we know very little about. Based upon certain comments, we assume that he's older. We don't know for sure. He doesn't appear to have any official post or title, not a Pharisee, not a Sadducee, not an elder, not a deacon or anything like that. We do know some things, though. We know that he's just, and we know that he's devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. We also know that the Holy Spirit, even prior to Pentecost, was upon him. Now, more times than not, the Bible seems to record the sin of man rather than the righteousness of man. I mean, when you start reading the Bible, you get into the Old Testament, you know, you start reading about the characters and the character traits of God's covenant people. It's almost horrifying, their behavior. I mean, you're, you're, you're hard-pressed to find anybody, you know, maybe Joseph, maybe Daniel, that there's not something negative written, written about. And truly, when we read our Bibles, our peace should not be found in our righteousness. Right? Our, our peace is found in the righteousness of Christ. I, I, would, I, I pray that we all, with Paul, the way he wrote it, would, in Philippians 3.9, be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So this idea of being just, by the way, that word means righteous. We're talking about Simeon. He's described as just, but even Simeon would not stand approved before God based upon his own just character. Simeon, like anybody else, needs the righteousness that is found by faith in Christ. So we, we, we take comfort in that, and we should. We should take comfort in the fact that when Jesus, or when God looks at us, he does not see us. When, he's, when God looked at, at Jesus on the cross, he saw our sin, Right? That's why Jesus said, you've forsaken me, like the Father looks away. And it's not just an ignoring, it's a, it's a look away in such a way as the wrath of God falls upon Jesus. So when the Father looked at the Son upon the cross, 
he saw our sin, but when he looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. I mean, that's, that's about as comforting as any message could be. And yet I got some news for you. He does see our sin. He, he knows everything. Right? So he must know my sin because there's another sense in which he looks at you and me and not in the sense of being justified by faith, but being sanctified. And in order for him, as even I prayed a minute ago, to, con to conform us into the image of Christ, to make us more like Christ, to form Christ in us, he has to know everything about us. And he, he, has, to, he has to take out his scalpel and carve things away, and sometimes it's painful to do that. And I think we need to be careful that we don't try to live this life in such a way as to take so much comfort that we're justified by grace alone through faith alone, that we think being a just person doesn't mean anything. That, that, that seeking to love God and love our neighbor, how much? How much are we supposed to love God and love our neighbor? I think Jesus said it. With all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, and I think that's the, just a brief way of him saying, with everything you got. And so we see this description of of Simeon, this idea of being just. Again, not perfect, not sinless, but we see the same words used to describe Joseph, you know, Mary's husband, uh, Zacharias, Elizabeth, Joseph of Arimathea. There are, there are people in the Bible that are described this way. They're not sinless people, but they're good people. Now, I don't take these adjectives to somehow be mere compliments. Although it would be nice to have your name in the Bible with the word just and devout next to it. I mean, that's kind of a nice little resume. But I look at this as more of a contrast to the religious and political culture in which they were living. In these events that we've been reading about, these somewhat homey events recorded early in Luke, what we're reading here is the beginning of God changing the world. That's what we're reading about. God is about to change the world. And most of the people in that culture would be on the wrong side of this transition. The state was dark, darker than any state we have right now in this country. The, the church was corrupt darker than the church in our own country. I mean, Jesus came into his own, his own received him. We've talked about this, like, at length in Revelation, right? I mean, he was being born, and what were they doing? They were trying to kill him from the day he was born. And so you've got this very dark, both political and religious culture, and over and against that, we have a description of this guy, Simeon, who was just and devout. He was kind of unique in that, in that culture. Truly, very few in that culture, when Jesus were, was born, were finding the narrow gate. Very, I don't think that's still true. I think a lot of people. I mean, I think a lot of people seem to be finding it throughout the course of history. But at the time when he said the gate is narrow, few are those who pass through it. I think it was very much a true statement. But Simeon was one of them. Let's not um, underestimate the power of a godless culture or even an anti-God culture. 
Have you felt yourself silenced by that dynamic? Have you kind of felt like, I don't really want to say anything here. I don't want to engage. Are, are you willing at some level to take rank against those who take rank against the Lord's Christ? And by, by saying take rank, I'm not talking about being hostile. I'm talking about engaging in what Paul calls the warfare. Are you ready? It's, you know, it's war. War's hard. Are you, are you ready to engage in the warfare? Because Simeon seemed unfazed by the dark culture by which he was surrounded. Are we all willing to kind of follow that, that model, that example that we see in him? Because things seem to be moving in the wrong direction in the West. You know, my view of eschatology, I think in the final analysis, the, the ups and downs of history are going to go up. People talk about the last days. I always cringe. But you know what? The last days, um, it may be the last days of America. I mean, God kind of goes, you're, you're done. You're, you're done as a nation. Oh, yeah. Don't, don't overdo it. Don't overdo it. God, just go and look at it. I'm, I've had you for a while. You look, you look at Europe. Look at all the chapels in Europe. All, all that, it was just amazing. And then there was a time when God said, you're done. And I'm, now, we're, now we see the gospel really growing in the east. You know, he's got his way. He's going to do it. And I think he'll win. Yet at the same time, we, never, we need to recognize that when we're surrounded by darkness, we don't, we don't take our flashlights and stick them in our pocket. Some people understand just, the word just here, which means righteous, as his disposition toward his fellow man, and devout as his disposition toward God. The, the second ta- table of the law, so-called, the first table of the law, just as his, the way he operates with other people. Devout would be the way that he would operate in terms of his devotion to God. And I think there's some merit to that based upon what happens next. That he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. So that's the very next thing that's said about him, that we know about him. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. That word consolation is, you know, the Greek word is periklesen. It's the idea of coming to one side. It's the comfort encouragement and alleviation of grief that Christ provides for those who belong to him. I'm going to come and I'm going to be next to you. I'm participating. I am with you always. It'll be said later, right? I am with you always. He's not some distant God out there. He is the God who is also here. This is really just a warm and tender way to say that Simeon was anticipating the coming of the Christ. That he, that's what he was waiting for. I think it can be said of Simeon, what we read in Proverbs 8, 17, I love those who love me, and those who, diligently, those who seek me diligently will find me. If you're really, I mean, if you're genuinely seeking God, he's saying you'll find him. So I don't know, people who say, I'm seeking God, but they don't find him, let me tell you, 
because I believe the Bible is more true than they are, you're not really looking. You're saying you're looking. You're looking for something. But if you're actually looking for the true, living, triune God, guess what? You'll find him. And I have a reason I think that's true. It's because you're not really going to look unless he finds you first. Simeon was waiting and seeking, and we're going to see in a moment, not in the moment, but next week, along with Anna, they, have made, they may have been the only two souls in all Jerusalem who recognized Jesus. Verse 26, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, you don't really see that anywhere else. It's kind of a unique situation. And uh, th- that, by the way, that knowledge that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, that's a unique, I think, prophetic gift given to Simeon. And we should not expect that for us. We should not expect that, you know, it, that he had this kind of prophetic knowledge of God that you and I don't, don't really have. Yet, it's not just written in there for a history lesson about him. We are taught something about the heart of this biblically labeled just and devout person that there was something so important to him, so valuable to him, that the fulfillment of it would allow him to depart in peace. And I'm almost envious of that very conviction, the fact that, you know what, if I can see this, and in his case, the Lord had promised it, right? And he saw it, and he's like, I can depart in peace. There is a um, very touching scene, and some of you probably don't like the same kind of movies I like, and this particular movie, there's one scene you need to fast forward. I just want to get that out of the way. But there's a really touching scene in the, the 1995 blockbuster Braveheart where there's a dad, his name is Campbell, and they had just engaged in this battle, and they're like by the river, and the dad is he's dying. And he's sitting with his grown son, who was also in that battle, Hamish, and Hamish is talking to his dad because the dad's kind of going, I'm, I'm dying. And Hamish is like trying to light a fire under him, kind of going, no, you're not. You're not dying. He's like, I am dying. Like he knew his time had come to an end. Yet at the same time, the goal of that scene is to show that he's at peace. And he explains why he's at peace. One of them is that he lived long enough to live free. I mean, his whole life they were enslaved to the English, right? And his whole, now, at the end of his life, they lived free, although the whole time he was free, he was fighting. But he rather would be somebody free fighting than somebody who was living at peace in slavery. He's like, no, that to me, I've I've experienced freedom. And then, as he breathes his last breath, he tells his, his weeping son, that he was proud to see him become the man that he is. So he looks at his boy, who's a big giant guy. <laughs> he goes, I'm proud to see you become the man that you are. 
And then the last word, his last words are, I'm a happy man. Now, you know, I thought that was really well done in the movie, but I'm looking at that going, okay, is that just a movie? Or do we see that type of thing in the Bible? And we do, by the way. We see numbers of encounters in the Bible between fathers and sons, anyway, when the father is about at the end of his life. You know the story of, of Joseph, right? And how he was sold into slavery, and his, his dad, Jacob, thought he was dead, right? The brothers lied. And there came a point where the dad realized he wasn't dead. And we read the line in Genesis 45, 28, the dad was so elated, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Practically an entire chapter in Genesis is dedicated to Jacob talking to his sons about what they're going to do once he dies. And then he gives his instructions for his own burial. A whole chapter is, I'm leaving, and here's what I want to have happen. I'm leaving, and this is what I want it to look like. We see the same thing with David and Solomon. David giving Solomon advice, which he maybe didn't really take, right? But that was kind of like, look at I, I'm not going to be able to leave in peace until I convey to you what I think you need to know. And once I've conveyed that, I can depart in peace. So ask yourselves, just what would make you happy when you knew you were living your last day? Like what, what is it that you're going, you know what, if I can see this, I can depart in peace. I think that's worth taking some time to think about. Because that'll, that'll determine some direction for you. That'll determine where you're going to place your efforts. I mean, I know, you know, for me, I think about, you know, my own children and their Christian viability that I see them walking in the faith, that I see my children make good choices in terms of who they're going to spend their lives with. Like, that's kind of a big deal to me. That, that there are well-placed, godly individuals in that community that I think is valuable. I think of our own church, you know, like of if whenever the Lord would take me home, do we have good elders here? Are they going to pick a good pastor? I mean, this to me is valuable. This is like, I, I feel like, you know, we're good. I feel like it would be heartbreaking to look at my own church and go, well, and this is not the case, by the way, but wow, we got a bunch of knuckleheads on board, and I'm going, to, I'm done here. That would be heartbreaking. Simeon was not confused about what he wanted. Now, we're going to speak more about that in another time, but for now, let us recognize that his clarity in terms of that which was of value in his life, allowed him to depart in peace. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, and I'm going to stop there because he's about to enter into a, into a prayer or a canticle or a song or a poem, whatever, People argue about what it is. But I would say that what this passage is telling us is that Simeon was supernaturally guided by the Holy Spirit into the temple just when Joseph and Mary and the baby were there. And then he would soon enter into the, you know, we've had a series of, of these canticles or these poems or songs 
We're about to see the last one, and we'll start a little bit of it this morning, and we'll finish it next week, all these things surrounding the birth of, of Jesus. But the reason I decided to make this, you know, break this up into two different parts is because I didn't want to sprint past the intimacy of this moment. I kind of feel like we need to put the brakes on here. We need to get out of the car and hike a little bit. I remember I was in, I was, uh, in New Zealand years ago, and I was kayaking, you know, and our guide, you know, because you're just kayaking slowly, and it's, a be- you know, beautiful. And the guide, who was very, you know, earthy, whatever kind of guy, he'd like sometimes, as I say, because sometimes you got to get out of the car, and you got to just get in a boat and paddle. And you're going to see things that you don't see. you got to stop and smell the roses, man. Take a deep breath and see what's going on right here. Because the temptation here in this passage was just to move past it. Maybe it's just me. But I feel like we tend to undervalue the startling contrast between the imminence and the transcendence of God. And what I mean by that is, the, 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 the transcendence is the God out there, and the imminence is the God right here. I, f- I feel like, for me, for years, that just didn't really mean much to me. And we prayed today, our Father who art in heaven. And there you have, in one phrase, all of that. Our Father, right? The God who is here. The family member. The dad, Right? sitting on the Barca lounger. There's the dad. He's in the room, right? Intimate, close, touchable, who art in heaven, incomprehensibly high, invisible, out there. And I think that we need to appreciate both of those things. Jesus is not a friend, a friend next to you. Jesus is a friend, so sing along. You know, that, we got to be careful not to make Jesus a contemporary even though he says, I no longer call you slaves, but friends. But as I've said many times, you never see any of the apostles describing themselves that way, right? Paul doesn't say, Paul, a friend of Jesus. Paul, Jesus' buddy. No, what does he say? Paul, a slave. I mean, they recognize really the true, loving, gracious, condescending nature of that statement that Jesus made when he said, I no longer call you Slaves, but, but friends. We need to kind of keep both of those in, in the balance. Simeon, and this is what hit me. Simeon picked up the Savior of the world. He held him in his arms. And I think Luke, by the Spirit, would have us pause and appreciate that intimacy. Why would he write it? Simeon actually, he did hear what Jesus would do later when he would take the children in his arms, right? We read about Jesus doing this later, right? He would take the children and lift them up in his arms. You know, one of the pet peeves I have, I'm on a committee where we uh, examine young men who want to be pastors. And I say it's a pet peeve, and I've done, but I, it's, I've done this myself, and that is when we're talking to them about these amazingly holy and sacred things. Or when they give a sermon at Presbytery, 
to be examined, and you're like, well, it's a test. And part of me is like, wait, this is a sermon, you know? But what bothers me is when they're handling the Christian faith as, it's a mere, as if it's a mere academic exercise, questions to be asked and answered. And I'm like, do you realize that you're touching holy things? Like, this, if you touch the ark, what would happen to you? And yet we're talking so casually about it. I get it. I'm not saying, you know, that I'm immune to it. And I most certainly would have done the same thing and probably still do. But this idea of recognizing the intimacy of this, that these things that we are speaking about should cut us to the core. Or as we read when Peter gave a sermon, they, they were cut to the heart. Being carried. Being carried is a very intimate thing. I, I don't remember. I know I was carried. I don't remember when I was a kid. I don't remember being carried. But I do remember carrying my own children. And I have to say, I kind of miss it. I had one, I had one child that was probably in the last year. I started missing it. And I go, and she's like in her 20s. I'm like, hey, I want to carry you. I'm like, sure, Dad. You know, and I'm like, wow. She's kind of tiny, so it wasn't too bad. But my wife, my wife shared with me something that was so um, sad when I heard it. And she's like, you know, there's going to come a time when you'll put your child down for the last time. Right? You don't know, right, when it is. You know, you don't know. I don't know. Are they four? Are they eight? Whatever they are. But you're, you're never really going to pick them up again. Okay, with my child, I did it. I'm going to do it again. <laughs> Isaiah, recording God's refutation of the idols of Babylon, writes this. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth. What's an interesting statement. I'd like to dig into that a little further. It's not my point right now. Been born by me before your birth, carried from the womb, even, so here we have it, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and will save. He's presenting it in a very intimate way, this idea that, you know what, I'm going to carry you. He could have said that any number of different ways. I'll get you through it, or whatever. No, I'm going to lift you up. You have gray hair. I'm going to lift you up. Simeon then now offers the blessing. Simeon blessed God. You ever get confused about people blessing God? I mean, the Psalms say, bless the Lord, O my soul, right? Psalm 103, I think it is. Because the word blessed is where we get the word actually eulogy from. And anybody know what eulogy means? It's a compound word. E-U means good. Logos means words. You know, a eulogy in a memorial service means you're saying nice things. So it really just means to say something nice. And so when, when Simeon offers this eulogy to, to God, he's basically saying nice things about God, to put, it, to put it simply. Lord, verse 29, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. So that gets us back to the point here of departing in peace. In my research on this passage, I encountered some 
who understood Simeon to be uniquely otherworldly in this statement. As if to say, this world has never been my home. I don't really belong here. I'm glad to go. There, there is a great emphasis among even Reformed Christians to really dig into the idea that we are sojourners, we're pilgrims, and that's where we ought to kind of function as sojourners and pilgrims as if it's every other verse in the Bible. Let me tell you, it's not in the Bible that much. Truly, don't get me wrong here, our, Paul says our eternal citizenship is in heaven. So don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Our eternal citizenship is in heaven. But we need to be careful to be so, if I could put it this way, otherworldly, that our heads end up in the clouds and we utterly disengage from the world in which we live. We, we are citizens in heaven. Right now, you have citizenship in heaven. You know where else you have citizenship? Right here. It's not citizenship in heaven to the exclusion of citizenship here. We are to operate as citizens here with a knowledge of what our true citizenship is. Right? What do we pray? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You are a citizen in heaven. What's going on there? Because whatever is going on there should be going on here. I mean, that's what we pray for. That's what Jesus told us to pray for. Paul, in examining what was better for him, right? He's like, you know, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. There's a passage where he's kind of wrestling with this very issue, right? Of living or dying, being here, being with Jesus. You know what he says? He goes, it's far, it would be far better to be with Jesus. So let's not lose that. Feel free to quote me. But he also said this, that he found himself, quote, hard-pressed between the two. It wasn't like, hey, just get me out of here. He's like, Lord has me here. He's got things for me to do. I want to do them. And so I don't want to, I don't want to leave if God's got me. He, he, he kind of went even make Clark. Like, I'm ready to do whatever the God wants me to do, but I'm ready to go if he wants me to go. And it would appear that the peace enjoyed by Simeon was not merely to leave this world, that which was the promise according to God's word, but you think about it, that he would depart with the knowledge of what God would be doing in this world. Right? He looks at the, he looks at the baby Jesus, and that somehow granted him peace. Why? Was he just because he was a cute baby? Or was it because he realized that God was about to change the world. That God was about to, through this child, bring the gospel to every nation. That God, through this child, was going to actually vindicate himself. That through this child, all sorts of things were going to happen in this world. And so he was able to leave in peace, knowing that as he left, God was doing a great work upon the earth. That would affect that which would eventually be in heaven. So it wasn't him just going, well, I just want to get out of here. This world is hard. I'm glad to leave. When he saw that baby Jesus, 
what he saw in seminal form was the entire gospel. And he really sums it up in one word. Verse 30, for my eyes have seen, it's really two words in the Greek, and well, it's two words in the English, but I don't know why I said one word, but your salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation. Salvation, in a full and genuine sense, was seen by, by Simeon when he looked at the baby. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people would see Jesus fully grown without eyes to see what Simeon saw looking at the baby. Many, many people, both then and now, are presented with the fullness of the person of Christ, the one born of a virgin, the one who's truly God and truly man, this person, this unique person. Many are presented with the fullness of the work of Christ, his miracle working, his incomparable love for his father, his incomparable love for, for fellow man. They would, many people are presented with the person of Christ, with the, with the work of Christ, the, the, the conquering of death, his resurrection, his ascension. Many would be presented with that full message, yet they refuse, and I use the word refuse because we suppress it in unrighteousness, they refuse to see that revelation, that full revelation that Simeon somehow saw in the baby. I just don't want to see it. I don't want to hear it. Let me tell you, that shouldn't shock you. It takes a special set of God-given eyes to see these types of things. The natural mind, the natural heart, the natural eyes, the natural ears do not hear, they do not see, and they do not beat for these things. What Jesus said many years later to his disciples, in contrast to the deaf ears and blind eyes by which he was surrounded, I think could be said of Simeon here. Matthew 13, 16, blessed are your eyes. For they see, and your ears, for they hear. And I, I pray that's true of everybody here. That to, to whatever extent, in say this sermon, I've told the truth, because I'm not infallible. God's word is infallible. To whatever extent you've seen that, and you're like going, yes, it's become apparent to me that this is true. To whatever extent you've seen that, is a result of the fact that God has opened your eyes. You don't open your own eyes. He opens our eyes. I think it's of note that occasionally the Bible will speak as if things are hidden, right? Hidden in Christ, right? Wisdom and knowledge, hidden in, in Christ. It also tells us in Colossians 3.3 3, that we, that we are hidden in Christ. That special act of God's grace where Simeon was given eyes to see that which was otherwise hidden from a hard heart. John Calvin rightly extends to everything. He wrote, for in Christ are hid all the parts of salvation and of a happy life. I do pray that we all have eyes to see what Simeon saw while he held the baby Jesus. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that 
we would both be stunned, as it were, by your transcendence, that we would, as we saw with John, fall down as dead in light of your glory, that we might at the same time feel your hand upon us, beckoning us to rise and to fear not, which we'll see as a theme throughout Luke's gospel. Help us, Father, to not have a casual disposition toward the things of God, recognizing them to be holy, and help us to appreciate the intimacy of this event. And may we, like Simeon, live lives where we see the truth of the person and the work of Christ in his name. Amen.